1: Hot mic. (laughs) I'm I'm going to start off by saying, I don't know if that's a real British accent that she has. Our our podcast. Oh, (laughs) Oh, hey. You're you're disparaging our podcast? I'm not. I don't know her personally. I'm sure she's a really nice person and and a talented voice. I want my money back. (laughs) It said authentically British. Hmm. I'm
2: gonna have to think about that. I have to listen to it for the
1: thousandth time. To. <laughs> it's when you really it really sinks in, around really. I, I've uh, never I've always trusted. <laughs> um,
2: all right, so if you're just joining us, which you probably are, because it's uh, we
1: starting. Yeah, we're just joining us. Really.
2: We're uh, talking Mad Smack about our British announcer and whether she is in fact British. Um. We're Jeffless again. We're
1: Jeffless again. We are. He's still on sabbatical. He'll yeah. be joining us. Tan rested and ready next week.
2: Uh, which the only difference will be he'll be rested and ready because he's always tan. He is. Um, so uh, before I forget, I want to I want to give a shout out. I just got an email today from a longtime first time, longtime listener first time emailer. Right. Um, says uh been a fan for well actually been a fan for a little over a year now and one it was writing to tell us that today July 26th uh she is celebrating 1 year sober Whoa. and that uh said so the, the listening to the podcast has encouraged her through some tough days over the past year and listening to people like you three and your guests has helped me realize that there doesn't have to be any shame in being a person in recovery. That's fantastic. And that's absolutely fantastic because there is no shame in being a person in recovery. Um,
1: it's all good. It's all good. No yeah. shame whatsoever. Yeah. And that so, is incredibly esteeming. And to that's,
2: hear. Uh, that's, that's Amy. Shout out to Amy. Congrats and thanks Amy. for listening. Thanks for writing. and. Massive Congratulations On uh, One year sober It's It's a lot of days It's it's a lot of days a lot of days And uh, Yeah Keep it up And We'll be here When uh, Whenever you need us And Even when you don't Um, The other thing is I neglected You know We have a a Sort of a Not a sort of It's a tip jar On the On uh, The Since Right Now Dot com Backslash PDCST Page which for some reason I didn't write podcast and it's too late to change it. <laughs> um, I took out the... I was stupid. Um, anyway. Uh, and periodically people do leave us tips. They are greatly appreciate, appreciated. Um, one thing I neglected to do is give... is, is, is And maybe I'll rectify this, but add a, a place to let people know how they want to be acknowledged. In this case, I'm just going to say Eric A., um i think is our most recent uh tipper and i uh, just want to thank eric very much for wow. um you know listening and uh for the uh his generosity yeah thank you eric. so and there there's been eric's not the only one there's been others i've been totally remiss in in acknowledging the tips um and i apologize but to anyone that's ever left us a tip and some of well they 're all equally generous let's let's also I won't go into <laughs> I, won't, I won't categorize them um, but anyway thank you all it all matters from one two hundred dollars um, yes. it, it, it means a lot to us and uh, thank you and helps so thank you because that's really we that's we don't solicit money any other way or or um, you know we don't have advertising as of yet someday maybe we will but uh, you know that Little tip jar um, helps. Uh, so th- tonight um, we're about to welcome our guest on uh, Scott Pallara, who I have identified as a re- rehab recovery advocate, and mm-hmm. we're, we're going to dial him in in a minute and see if that rings true for him of how he's described um, as a descriptor for him. And uh, do do we have any other? Uh, no. Anyone? In- No, I'm excited to talk to
1: Scott. I did, you know, we do a little bit of prerequisite stalking. You know, we we check out the interwebs and see, poke around. And Scott's a fascinating individual and uh, has some really, I think, important and well-grounded, well-founded things uh, he's passionate about. Let's get him on the horn. Let's talk to the man himself. Um, Let's see. Let me make sure
2: things are situated the way they should be, and uh, let's call Scott. Hi, Chris. Hey, Scott. Um, it's Chris, and uh, I'm here with Matt. How you doing, Scott? Hey, guys. And uh, I... it it slipped my mind when I talked to you earlier in the pre-call. Jeff's not going to make it uh, tonight. He's still on sabbatical hiatus, also known as vacation. <laughs> um, and I, I had forgotten that he was out for two weeks, not just one. Um, so welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I did a little bit of filling in, a little bit of an intro uh, before we call, dialed you up. But let me just introduce Scott as what I had identified you as a rehab Recover, re, rehab Reform Advocate And you can let let us know If that, that rings true um, Scott is the author Of the forthcoming books Drug Rehab and the Six Things Help me out with the rest of that
0: You absolutely need to know Before you go
2: And uh, a, an expose Is the second book on the rehab industry, and does that have a title yet? I think I, uh,
0: I have a tentative working title. Okay. Um, it is uh, the fraudulent world of drug rehab okay. and why it doesn't work.
2: Okay. Okay. And uh, th- the first of those drug rehab and the six things that's out. You said next
0: week. Next week, yeah, I'm, I'm rolling it out on Amazon just as an ebook, just a quick guide uh, that I intended to be no more than.
1: You know, an hour,
0: maybe two hours worth of reading time um, that people can use uh, as a tool to kind of help them, you know, research treatment options and what to look for and what to avoid and questions you should probably ask before going um, because not all treatment centers are the same. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, bad apples and bad actors out there currently. So
1: So, no question.
2: Yeah. Can we can we rewind all the way back, and just get a bit about how you came to be um, first person in uh, recovery, um, mm-hmm. and, and puts you in this position to to um, talk about rehab. So sure, sure.
0: So I've I've always been a person who had a predilection for sort of leaning towards substances as a way to deal with life and discomfort and personal suffering. And it sort of came to its culmination in my mid 20s. And uh, I just kind of had enough of, you know, enough was enough. And I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, And so I checked myself into a residential treatment center in Malibu, California. And I had an amazing experience there. It was it was exactly what I needed. Um, there's a facility that offered primarily individualized treatment options and therapies. Um, however, it was just one clinician there that sort of opened up my eyes to what I was missing. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, I kind of had this epiphany. I was like, well, this is it. This is kind of a path I want to walk down for a while and help others sort of alleviate their own suffering and through the wisdom i sort of gained through my experience of learning about myself and treatment and um sort of why we're here on this planet and and so i it prompted me to go back and get a job at that same treatment center about six months after i after i'd left as a client and it was really interesting because when i started working there I sort of got to see what the other side of the veil looked like. Now, my experience as a client was amazing. But however, as an employee, I got got offered a glimpse of a a world that uh, wasn't as attractive. And I saw how the owners interacted with staff. I saw how the owners interacted with with clients. Um, I saw how they how they really utilized the hard sell with mm-hmm. uh, loved ones and offered all sorts of, you know, made so, all sorts of statements and false promises to entice people to extend their stay. Um, you know, conversations such as, you know, you need to max out your credit cards or you need to take a second mortgage out on your house. You know, this is, this is what this, you know, your loved one needs and they just need one more month. And, um, you know, it was, it was disheartening. And, it prompted me to want to do something a little bit different. And I saw that the one size fits all approach just doesn't work and it doesn't make sense. Cause we all have different beliefs. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different life purposes. And I, I just saw that there was a need to offer a totally customized approach to transmuting addiction. And so it prompted me to start a concierge treatment program. Um, initially it was sort of a concierge detox program that I started with one of the former medical directors of that same facility. And then from there, I branched out on my own. and started my own program called the power of choice. And that was back in 2008. Do you
2: define what a concierge
0: program is? It's really just completely customized treatment for, for an individual. I mean, like I said, like, especially living out here, I live in Los Angeles and there's so many unique individuals just in this area that have um, different demands and needs just based upon who they are, uh, what their professions are, what their beliefs are. Mm-hmm. And so I offered it as a service to work only one-to-one with one individual at a time, and I offer treatment in um, com- in settings that are completely private that mirror the environment that the individual will eventually be returning back to. Mm-hmm. And I work only with clinicians that have either all thought leaders in their own right. They're authors, they're lecturers, they are individuals that have at a minimum 20 years experience in the field of working with addiction and mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw kind of how with the introduction of insurance back in 2008 in the residential setting, a lot of senior clinicians started leaving or they were pushed out, um, because of, you know, the facilities just couldn't pay, pay the same as they used to. And so the quality of care diminished and, you know, by offering treatment from senior level clinicians in uh, again, a, a more realistic setting, um, I just saw that the efficacy of treatment could be exponentially greater. Mm-hmm. And so, from there, I kind of shifted into not just working with treatment, but also offering sort of holistic concierge-style healing programs for the masses, because so many people deal with anxiety and depression and other mm-hmm. concerns, so I just wanted to open it up to, to to more people, and so it's kind of morphed into that. Um, but again, I think the most effective approach to working with, with addiction is is one-to-one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, which makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's interesting that you had both the client experience and then kind of saw behind the veil um, some some of the inner workings. You know, on yeah. personally, I've been through three uh, inpatient rehabilitation programs in the last uh, twenty years. Everything from um, some of the more you know, from the coastal California uh, tonier confines um, to a kind of hard scrabble um, inpatient, for lack of a better term, um, very inexpensive place that finally, you know, I was ready um, uh, just just three and a half years ago. But uh, it, it's been, it, it was amazing to me just the, the wide variety um, of approaches Uh, but Mm -hmm. I had always wondered what things were like on the other side of the proverbial curtain, you know, and, and the fact that the exorbitant expense, um, the, the, the first one I went to was in Minnesota and it's, you know, the renowned, the famous one. And the second one was the coastal California and it was well in excess of, you know, of a thousand dollars a day. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I found that from the client side to be, um, the most, uh, I don't want to say it was brazenly capitalistic or anything, but I saw an enormous disconnect between the counselors and the clientele and some of the freedoms that were afforded to these people. It seemed to be the antithesis of custom care. Mm -hmm. What you're describing now, that one-to-one connection, was really very... People were kept in sober homes in which recently recovered or or former clients were kind of the sober Mm. house fathers of those uh, sober homes. And it just seemed to be a really... A really broken model i saw more use and more um taking advantage of the system and that type of c- construct than i had seen even while i was using and drinking there was mm, yeah it was rampant and uh constant urinalysis on a daily basis and people mm-hmm. failing and failing and failing and uh um i would love to hear um you know i don't want to ask you to give up the ghost uh, on your forthcoming expose, but uh, (laughs) just some of, some of the tenants and some of the consistencies Mm -hmm. that you've seen, um, having, you know, peered through that, the other side and having that experience, the things that are wrong.
0: Well, you touched on one of them and that's just the urine scam is a huge one. Mm -hmm. Um, there's absolutely zero medical necessity for it, mm-hmm. but yet these facilities engage in it only because it is extremely lucrative. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, there's only really two reasons to use, to utilize, maybe three, uh, urine testing is one when clients first come in to show that they have substances in their system and maybe what they are. Um, second would be if, you know, client in treatment, you was suspected of using just to get verification or third that the client left treatment on their own unaccompanied and then later came back. Mm -hmm. So, um, according to insurance guidelines, those are really only like the three reasons to, to engage in urine testing. But a lot of these programs are the only reasons why treatment centers remain profitable. Um, You know, some facilities, especially the lower end facilities, the the cost of treatment is not that high, but they engage, like you said, in like seven day a week urine testing programs. And the amount of money that is um, captured from these programs is is it's astronomical. Mm -hmm. And, And another another problem is, you know, treatment centers billing for clinical services that aren't provided. And I I worked – I ran a detox facility uh, in the valley out here for a while, and I saw the pressures that the owners put on the clinical director. And they they wouldn't hire clinical staff. They made this one marriage and family therapist document and and provide – treatment for the whole entire house. And, um, we originally started out, they originally started out as a detox facility and then transitioned into residential treatment because they realized they weren't just, they weren't making enough money just by offering detox services. Mm -hmm. So the, the clinical director then had to document six clinical hours per day per client. And there was just no way that this, that she could do this. Mm -hmm. So, to keep her job and uh, under the direction of the owners, she was forced to document clinical hours for treatment that was never provided. Mm. And this happens (laughs) at at a number of facilities. I mean, it's not uncommon. Another one out here in California too is, is utilizing something called a rad T, which is the, the lowest level certification an individual can attain and still document clinical hours. Mm. So the owners had, uh, some of the support staff, the techs, these $12 twelve an hour employees get their RAD-T mm. certifications, which supposedly take nine hours. Mm. Um, it, took, it took me 45 minutes to get mine. Wow. And from there, once you have it, you can document uh, group therapy. Wow. So, wow. <laughs> so, so they were documenting things like mindful walks, so basically taking the clients out and walking them through the neighborhood. <laughs> and. Uh, movie therapy you know putting dvds on for two hours and documenting two hours per client for for group therapy wow um so that that's common uh, and uh another medical test too like allergy testing is a big scam um mm-hmm. there's no need for treatment um and then pharmacogenetic testing the dna testing does have value but like for example at the detox facility i worked at that by the time we got the results back the clients were already three quarters of the way through their detox, mm-hmm. and the physicians would never adjust their medication schedules based upon the results. Mm-hmm. But again, it's just another lucrative uh, revenue stream for the owners to engage in. So, you know, and under the current system, what we have now, it's we, as all, you know, everybody under Obamacare was mandated to have private health care insurance, or we had to pay a penalty. Right. And so, under the affordable care act and a couple other pieces of legislation that were passed before that and subsequent to that we as private health insurance carriers or holders um, we are all paying for everyone's treatment now mm-hmm. and our insurance premiums are going up ex- ex- exponentially based on part of what's going on not only in you know the rehab world but also you know the medical field in, in general but You know, there are so many bad apples and so many cases now coming to light of of healthcare fraud being committed in the residential treatment world and detox and sober livings and whatnot that it's 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 alarming, you know, because the industry itself is unregulated. And
2: that's the one of the most well, if not the most surprising aspect of all of this is that it's an unregulated industry. It's just.
0: Yeah, totally unregulated. And it comes down to really the state uh, in a lot of cases to enforce regulations and, uh, you know, the, the health insurance companies, they have their own inspectors and auditors that sort of, you know, will investigate health care, health care fraud. But, I mean, the, there are over what, 100,000 residential treatment beds in the country right now. Mm. Um you know, I think in 2013, there was like a 97% utilization rate. So, I mean, you're talking a lot of people on a lot of cases and we, they just don't have the people to sort of enforce the rule of law. Mm. In California, I think there's something like, I don't know, like three or four inspectors um, at, at the state, like health, at the state insurance commission that actually look into this stuff. So... Um, and then I think the licensing board here in California only has like something like 21 or 30, uh, inspectors that sort of look into treatment centers and, you know, we'll will show up and inspect and make sure that they have, you know, they're not, they don't have more clients than they're supposed to have. Um, clinical hours are getting documented, So it, it's just, again, it's like the wild west and we're all paying for it. Mm hmm. And it's just, it's not okay. And it's just, it prompted me to sort of want to write about it and try and expose it and and to sort of stimulate more of intelligent conversation as to how we can make changes, um, to not only regulate this industry, but to improve treatment outcomes because treatment statistically shows that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the revolving door of rehab just is not acceptable. And in large part too, it's, it's because of the health insurance, Uh, involvement uh, with, you know, managed care. We have a managed care uh, rehab system now, and the pharmaceutical industry, uh, you know, pumps drugs through the system, you know, through detox medications to uh, buprenorphine, naltrexone, benzodiazepines, and all sorts of other medications utilized in treatment. I mean, it's highly lucrative for the, for the pharmaceutical industry. So, um, you know, things, something needs to change. And, Yeah. In California alone, one person on average dies every 16 days in treatment.
1: That's insane. Wow. Wow.
0: Yeah. While in treatment. While in treatment. And a lot of it has to do with just poor quality care. I mean, you have $12 an hour employees who have no education, no experience, that are in charge of medication dispensing – um, you know, monitoring patients who are going through detox because you know, physicians are not allowed uh, by law in California to be, to operate in a residential treatment setting. And so we, you can have nurses, but for whatever reason, physicians are not allowed to sort to own treatment centers. They're not allowed to, to work within treatment walls. Um, they do, you know, but it's just, again, for whatever reason, it's just the way this, the system that we have, this is the way it works. And it's the patients who are suffering. And another thing I've seen and witnessed is just the false advertising that goes on. I mean, yeah. if you're a person that's looking for a treatment option, where do you go? You know, Where do you begin your search? Well, it's the internet, typically. And you can put anything you want on your website. You can advertise anything and say, oh, my treatment, this is the most effective treatment money can buy. We do it better than anybody. We have a 90% success rate, blah, blah, blah. Well, this happens, you know, and people rely upon this information to make choices as to where they go or where they're sending their loved ones, and you know, it's just it's it's wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. So um, there's this, this industry just needs to be cleaned up, and I'm not for overregulation. I'm not for big government or or whatnot, but something has to change because this the system is broken.
2: And so, what um, are are you? like connecting with like-minded individuals? Are you pursuing like policy at the state or local or regional? I mean, at national well, level.
0: Right now I'm just kind of focusing on my books and right. just getting that information out there. And then hopefully through that, it will create some sort of conversation an opportunity to have other conversations with people that, uh, you know, are in charge of sort of creating policy. Mm-hmm. um, because there needs there there's no standard in place, and you know treatment centers, to my knowledge, there isn't a single peer reviewed or systematic uh, report that shows that the treatment that is being offered in treatment actually works. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Treatment centers can't prove that what they offer works, mm-hmm. and they also can't show that for those cases where clients actually go through their treatment program and choose to create a sober life for themselves, that the treatment that was that they received had anything to do with their mm-hmm. choice of becoming sober. Um, but the system, again, it's it's just it's it's designed like so many other components of our medical system to to manage symptoms yeah. and. Yeah. We're getting a lot of people, and we, you know, we've seen what's what's gone on with the opioid epidemic, and that has been created through the pharmaceutical industry. You know, there's, there are three times as many people hooked on prescription pain medications as there are heroin. Mm-hmm. But we see, you know, and hear the politicians pounding the table like, oh, we've got this heroin epidemic. Well, we don't have a heroin epidemic. We have a prescription opioid epidemic. Right. And so what we're doing now is substituting prescription opioids, one form of them, for another form of prescription opioids and getting people, you know, hooked on Suboxone. And then if people leave treatment on Suboxone, chances are they're never getting off of it. Right. Gosh.
1: Now I'm getting enraged, but I, I <laughs> yeah. because there's so much I just the, I've always wondered about how you can substantiate. Um, and make any sort of solvent claim about efficacy, because, mm-hmm. you know, my first experience with rehabilitation was in 2002, at this esteemed and well-respected treatment empire. And the way that they would determine whether or not someone was sober was through phone interviews. So yep. they'd call me a month later, "'Are you sober?' Absolutely, yep. they call me six months later. Are you sober? Absolutely, there at no point was I going to say nope, not sober right. anymore because you feel like you know someone's right. watching you do your homework. You want to be a good mm-hmm. student, so mm-hmm. to claim any sort, how do you quantify success and how can you make a claim? It's going to be baseless and subjective, regardless, right? I sure, just,
0: sure. Then that's that's the million dollar question. But you know, we live in a world today where we've got guys that can build rockets you know, fire them up in the air and they land on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got people that are creating all sorts of amazing things, really intelligent people, smart people that can, that some way, somehow can get together and come up with a system or a test or a standard that we can show, you know, what, what, what works, what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you're right. I mean, the, the place I went to, too, did the same thing. I mean, they they, their aftercare was, was calling and checking to see if, I was still sober. And for me, you know, treatment was great and, and it made a lot of sense. But for so many others, it doesn't work. And there is that shame piece, like you said, like you weren't going to admit that if even if you're using or you weren't using, if you if, if you were using, chances are you're not going to admit to to using. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't I don't what I do know is that the system that we have in place, the therapies that are are offered in treatment, they're all supposed to be evidence based. Mm -hmm. And, um, even there, there's no evidence that really shows unequivocally that these therapies actually work. Mm -hmm. And if they did, we wouldn't have 90% relapse rates in treatment. Mm Um, that's crazy. And a big part of this is, again, they're just – it's the dictates of the insurance industry combined with the pharmaceutical industry. And what is most alarming is that since 1998, the pharmaceutical industry and the the insurance industries have spent more money lobbying our government than I I think something like oil and gas, uh, Wall Street, um, the military, and the automobile industries combined – so we've kind of created this pharma state um and again, treatment row is all about managing symptoms and getting people on medication mm-hmm.
2: well, you know it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, you you're familiar with like I think it was like a week or two ago that there was that massive bust uh, of doctors um yeah in Florida yeah, I think it was a i mean nationwide i think uh Holly let me pull this up. Yeah, it was like across 20 states. It was like 412 people were charged with uh, $1.3 billion worth of health fraud. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Florida kind of was ground zero. Florida was ground zero.
2: Yeah. Um, But uh, billed Medicare and Medicaid for drugs that were never purchased, collected money for false rehabilitation treatments and tests, and gave out prescriptions for cash. Now, what's interesting is like, you know, that's going on, and that in one sense is— it's great that's but you know that's also the war on drugs model where it's just it's mm-hmm. attacking the 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 criminals but it's not doing anything to reform uh, the system for the people that need the help right um, sure. and uh, yeah, I don't know um, I guess what, what do you think I mean my, my guess as you get into it in your book obviously but um, do you have a sense of, of where to start in terms of reform
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, I think one of the things that that needs to happen is that there needs to be some sort of lifetime cap on insurance benefits for those seeking treatment. Um, I was just writing about this today, actually, that, you know, I I think it was different when I went through treatment. I went through, again, I went to uh, one of those fancy Malibu places that was really expensive, um, and insurance didn't cover treatment back then. And so I had a lot of skin in the game. Yeah. You know, I, I had to pay for it. And now it's, you can get a $500, pay your $500, per, you know, monthly premium. Uh, most treatment centers will, you know, waive your copays illegally, of course, but they'll waive copays So you can go into treatment for, you know, 500 bucks, detox, you know, get off of street drugs and get put on medication. And then, you know, you leave treatment and then you, you, know, you might stay sober for a while. You might not. And, uh, you know, and you're in, and you're back to using again, and so this this cycle, and it's easy. I mean, people know, addicts know. Um, and again, I, I, one of the things I didn't touch on was all this body brokering that goes on in the industry too. Um, you know, selling people to treatment centers, mm-hmm. referral fees, and one thing I saw uh, quite a bit actually were the the the, play, the detox facility I worked at. They um they they used a the body broker to send them clients and. Uh, some of these clients that, that this guy sent would then try and recruit other people, other clients in our treatment center to relapse with them Wow. and then go and leave treatment and then go into another treatment facility. And then so th- the, the clients that they were sending into us, um, were getting fees for this. So they were getting, they were getting free treatment, free pharmaceutical drugs while they're in treatment, you know, free roof over their head food, and then getting a check for 500 to a thousand dollars. For going for green to go because the owners were paying five grand to the to the body broker. Oh God! And so, and then it was sort of like this cycle, and it was just it, it, it was just grow and grow and grow and grow. But so to answer your question about reform steps, I think one of them needs there needs to be a lifetime cap on treatment benefits. Mm, yeah. That you if you don't, it, which would make people's choices as to which facilities they go to, um, uh, I'd say a little more informed because they would do their due diligence as to what worked what treatment centers have higher success rates or what what programs you know could be more effective what's going to resonate with me and really sort of do your homework prior to going as opposed to just going on the internet typing in drug rehab and then calling the first three places that pop up on on your google search right um you know but again i i think treatment lifetime caps on treatment benefits um i think there needs to be a long, hard look at using taxpayer dollars to fund medically assisted treatment. Mm. Um, you know, there was something that came out, I think, a couple days ago now that uh, the government is earmarking something like $45 billion in taxpayer money to fund additional treatment and medically assisted treatment. But again, that's why are we using taxpayer dollars to, to pay for treatment when the pharmaceutical industry is, the, is really the entity as a whole that, that created so much of this problem? um I think we need to start there needs to be some sort of tax levied against all prescription opioids prescribed mm-hmm. and it needs it needs to be a tax that uh, that you know it's a let's say a fixed tax let's say it's a dollar per pill then if the pharmaceutical manufacturers decide to raise the price for consumers then in turn that that fine or fee or tax grows uh, as well mm-hmm. so, um, the, the, consumers again, at the end of the day, aren't getting stuck with the bill. Um, there needs to be some sort of performance standard put in place. I don't think if, if treatment centers are accepting insurance dollars, I don't think the insurance company should pay them, uh, everything that they're owed upfront. There should be some sort of system in place that if the, that the payments are paid out over, a, let's say a period of a year. Um, because these insurance companies can see who is going in and out of treatment, who's using their treatment benefits. And so if they're used a few times within a year, well, facilities aren't getting the whole lump sum. I think that would put more onus on providing effective treatment, um, by the facilities. And then there would be an onus to create uh, more effective aftercare plans and to pay attention and get engaged with their clients after they leave and continue that engagement. Because so many facilities, they don't care. I mean, once you leave, you're you're gone. And we're looking at the next person that we can, uh, you know, bring in. Because it's all about heads on beds and treatment. And, um, you know, I think certain certain steps like that, I mean, I don't know what, again, what that exactly looks like. But um, there needs to be something. I mean, there needs to be something. And right now, there's nothing.
2: Yeah, it seems like a a massive, massive problem. It's hard to keep it all in 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 perspective i guess um yeah so you mentioned uh was the first was the successful was your successful stay in treatment your your only stay in treatment or or was there yeah it was so you went in once and it was successful yeah Um, okay and that's it's interesting that you said it was great as uh as someone in the treatment but it was when you were on the other side that you became disillusioned which is interesting to me because it would seem like well i mean i guess it was successful for you then but <laughs> but that has more to do with you being ready i guess is what you're saying too
0: yeah and it yeah. it really comes down to the choices that a person makes once they leave treatment right. i mean yeah. it's easy to get become abstinent when you're in residential treatment right. i mean the rubber hits the road when you leave right. and the and you know, we all have the divine right of free will choice. Yeah. You know, our lives are what they are because of choices that we make. And, you know, treatment is about providing tools and strategies mm-hmm. and information and certain levels of, of physical healing to to give the individual, give the patient, their client the best chance of creating a sober life for themselves once they leave. And and I want to be clear there. I, to me, there's a difference between. Abstinence and sobriety. Mm-hmm. And you know abstinence is a state where we're just we're not engaging in you know utilizing our substances as a way to cope uh, with our own personal suffering or a way to sort of escape our reality temporarily. Um, sobriety is a state of consciousness that the desire to use is completely transmuted, mm-hmm. where thoughts don't even come into one's consciousness or awareness anymore. And, you know, 12 Steps was created roughly 70 years ago now, almost 80 years ago. Yeah. And to learn the history of the 12 Steps is pretty interesting. Um, there's a great book called The Sober Truth. I don't know if you guys have read it, by Dr. Lance Dodes, where he, sort of, he's, he investigates uh, 12 Steps and residential treatment and um, provides some really fascinating information but the 12 steps was created out of a need for some sort of method of treatment that didn't involve the, the sort of these hospitalizations and frontal lobotomies and all nice. these crazy elixirs and all this stuff and it was great for, for then, and it it helped people in my mind create periods of abstinence if they so chose now we're in a stage where we have the tools and the information to help people create sobriety, but they can't – not all of them are allowed to be used because of the health insurance is involvement, the industry's involvement uh, in treatment. Um, one of the things that I've seen that I've found to be extremely effective is plant medicine, You know, utilizing ayahuasca and ibogaine as forms of treatment. Um, hmm. It's the most powerful medicine on the planet for addiction treatment. No kidding. Without question. And you talk about transmitting addiction and creating the chance for sobriety. You know, there are facilitators and providers of plant medicine that I would steer away from. And there are others that I would just like treatment. Mm. But these medicines are we're here for a reason. They were given to us from a divine source. And um, they are powerful, powerful tools. But. You know, for reasons beyond my understanding, um, these tools have been taken away from us, and instead we have pharmaceutical medications. So,
2: that's interesting that you bring this. Do you, is, so? Is that from? That's from not from your personal experience with them, but through witnessing.
0: Oh, both. I mean, I've, I've never, I've, I've done ayahuasca. I've not done Ibogaine. Uh, I don't see a need, need to do Ibogaine personally, but, um, ayahuasca I've experienced. Um, I was fascinated, uh, from a lot of literature that I read. So I wanted to check it out myself. An acquaintance of mine, um, owns and operates a uh, plant medicine facility in Mexico. And Mm -hmm. I went down there and experienced his protocols. And from what I saw and witnessed, um, to me, it's the new paradigm for for treating addiction—not only addiction, but mental health concerns, anxiety, depression. There's no more powerful tool than plant medicine. Wow, wow!
1: And, and just anecdotally, I mean, I I have two two acquaintances that are very much of the same mind, but you know, having not experienced it myself, yeah. just the the power of ayahuasca in, in mm. really um in corrective and expansion of you know one's mental state i i just uh it's fascinating it's fascinating and it's not something it's so deeply stigmatized in conventional 12-step recovery oh of course Um, it's so deeply stigmatized because it's because of some of the trappings and misinformation and just uh um it's it's a shame because it Mm -hmm. sounds like it can really galvanize
2: also sounds like another show um
1: yeah meaning we may have to have you back to
2: cuz that, that that's not 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 a direction i, I anticipated actually i, I didn't um it, and it is fascinating but i do think
1: uh we could go down that rabbit hole yeah i think we're going to need to oh,
2: yeah. talk about yeah having <laughs> you come talk about those also as uh, to me that's obviously it's it's related but it's also a, a separate um topic all its own mm-hmm. um i'm trying not to veer hard off <laughs> onto that path um because i want <clears throat> Um. Okay, so interesting. The the plant medicine. Um.
1: Do you think it's a money? I mean, obviously, because it isn't regulated. regulated.
0: Yeah, well, part of it is that. Uh, you know, I mean, for my personal, it's truth serum. I mean, you really see what this world is, hmm. and you really see sort of the powers that be that sort of can, you know, that, that control the, the strings, so to, so to speak. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the government did a lot of experimentation and testing with mm-hmm. psychedelics in the sixties and seventies. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, they're powerful tools and the individual can see what, you know, into in different dimensions and, uh, You know that uh, and provide in it's it's sort of mainlines you with information that comes from You a different divine source so to speak and That information can really open up one's eyes And create a catalyst for them to want to make some fundamentally different choices Um, Because the system that we have the society that we have is is a construct it's been created and it's it's as a whole, our society breeds addiction right. and from the foods to the chemicals, to the technology, to the messaging through our media. Um, it's it's a system that has been intelligently designed to, you know, to, to keep people in a state of suppression. Hmm. So, you know, and, and drug treatment is, is, is part of that system.
2: Yeah, I think well, you you've raised like uh, some some interesting issues um, here at the the tail end. That well, one one I am I um, my perspective on addiction sobriety has come a long way since we started doing this podcast. And there was a time mm-hmm. when I didn't understand the the value or the power, and I've I've learned a lot since then. Of say. Um, you know, and more is being learned all the time about psychedelics and the treatment of depression and, and addiction. And you bringing that up, it, quite frankly, has taken me a bit by surprise with regard to ayahuasca and ibogaine. I think because it is unregulated, because it isn't traditional, like, U.S. Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's There's very much a sense of the other out there. And despite, you know, in my using history, done plenty of psychedelics, at this point— um, they're sort of, uh, you know, um, they're taboo, right? As yeah. somebody that's that's sober and in recovery, Did, mm-hmm. have, have you run into? I mean, certainly it doesn't seem like your sense is that that's like a, a relapse using ayahuasca. No,
0: no. Or, it's not a recreational. It's not a recreational drug. I mean, it's not a drug to begin with. Um, I mean, it's it's a plant, mm-hmm. and there's and it is. <laughs> it, it actually comes from two different plants. Ayahuasca is a brew okay. and it comes from two different plants. Yeah. So it's the chances of, of a person stumbling through the Peruvian jungle and grabbing bark from one tree and, and leaves off another tree and then brewing that together into a concoction to create sort of this, uh, you know, to create this source. I mean the chances and the probability of that happening mm. are incalculable.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, this medicine was gifted to us Hmm. for a reason Mm -hmm. and it breaks the chains of you know sort of the enslavement that we've all been sort of uh, put under and so you know part of the reason why addiction is so prevalent is again it goes back to everything all the inputs that we have in our society today and i don't ayahuasca is not a recreational drug i mean it's there's there's It's, it's an experience that is extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, very personally challenging at times because Mm -hmm. you're faced with, you know, your shadow Mm -hmm. and your ego Mm -hmm. and which is where addiction lives. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't live in our higher, higher states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. It lives in our lower nature Mm -hmm. and, you know, you come face to face with it. And it's, again, it's not something that you need the, you need a shaman there. Um, it's not something that you can do on your own. I mean, you can, I would ne- never recommend it. I know mm-hmm. people in LA do it. They'll, they'll fly shamans in, they'll do plant medicine ceremonies here, like in mm-hmm. the Hollywood Hills. And I mean, you're, you're dealing with energies that aren't of this dimension. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, you gotta be really careful with what you, do. and I have a game too. I've um, you know, you need to have the, just the purest sources of it. So, you know it's something you have to be very careful on on who you're how you're doing it you have to, in both of these medicines you have to prepare your body you mm-hmm. have to detoxify in advance you have to get mm-hmm. you know the chemicals out of your system you got to get animal products out of your system you should adhere to a plant-based diet Interesting. Um, you know not in you know not use caffeine um, different, there's foods that you shouldn't mm. eat. You, you shouldn't engage in, in sex for a couple of weeks or masturbation for a couple of weeks prior to doing plant medicine. So there's, mm. there's, there's a protocol here and it's not, you know, it's not like taking a couple of hits of acid and then mm. going to, you know, a concert. I mean, this is, this is, it's serious. And there's, and, yeah. Well,
2: which is my sense of it. I mean, just what I've heard about it, it sounds, <laughs> actually it sounds terrifying, but, um, <laughs> uh but and and by you saying it's not a recreation and i i didn't want to go down the rabbit hole but i am curious sure. um yeah. it, that it's not recreational that doesn't mean people don't use it recreationally correct I mean, I mean when you say people flying shamans in to do it in the hollywood hills it sounds very recreational to me yeah i think
0: um, people want to have not to interrupt you i think people <laughs> want to have a tangible spiritual experience which is what it provides i mean it provides you with a uh a, a direct connection with um you know with god mm. really i mean it's just the most generic way to explain it mm-hmm. i mean so much of what we come across in today's you know spiritual paths and religions is sort of uh, arm's length information well here this gives you this you, this gives you direct connection
2: when when you were using prior yeah in your prior life did you do psychedelics
0: um, I did a little bit in, in high school. Uh, I did mushrooms a few times and I did um, LSD a couple times. Yeah. And for me, and this is why I, you know, I, my predilection for substances has been so strong within me um, it's in my adolescent years was so like, was having, was, was for me using and uh, you know, the times that I was using, it was really to try and establish a connection with a higher power mm-hmm. in a way a higher source and to get more information because Mm -hmm. I just knew there was more Mm -hmm. than what I was being provided. And I I grew up somewhat Catholic. My dad's practicing Catholic. Mm -hmm. And so he would take me to church every now and again. I'm like, you know, we would go and I'm like, listen, God does not live here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is not for me. And so for me, part of my path was finding a spiritual connection. And I have, Mm -hmm. and, um, And so my experience using plant medicine was to deepen that practice. And, uh, you know, Native Americans and uh, Native cultures have used plant medicines, you know, since the beginning of civilized man Mm -hmm. and for a reason. And it's really, again, it's about information. What information do we have access to to heal ourselves, Mm -hmm and to expand our consciousness and um, so much of that information is hidden from us you know, by design to, to kind of keep us in this, a certain state
2: so well I mean I guess I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to find is where, where the line is drawn so you know marijuana is a plant, mushrooms are a plant um, is it how you use these things that makes it recreational or not recreational or medicinal or I mean, yeah, I I think
0: the intention behind it is key. Okay. Um, Again, psychedelics really have no addictive properties, and I I don't think there's a single case of anyone actually dying of an overdose from any sort of psychedelic. Right. Um, You know, there's countless studies that show the efficacy of psychedelics, even MDMA, you know, to treat addiction and depression. Um, Which I, which you know, again is used recreationally by by a lot of people, but it does have therapeutic value. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, plant medicine is again. um, I mean, I've spent ten years working in the field. I've I've worked in Western pharmaceutical based treatment, Mm -hmm. uh, worked with holistic treatment forms of treatment. There is no, there is no better source of addiction medicine Mm -hmm. than plant medicine.
2: That's fascinating. That's a hard take, too. Um, And I, I, not that I don't believe it at all. I just, it's it's really not, um, I didn't anticipate that coming from you. Um, It's very interesting. It is. It's interesting.
1: And we want to know more. And part of our kind of collective perspective, if we have one between the three of us who do this podcast, you know, Chris, who kind of did it his own way, Mm -hmm. and me, who's always wandering and wondering, and Jeff, who's more of a, a. Died in the wool 12 step guy Mm -hmm. is that however one arrives Mm -hmm. there, um, it's all valid, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But that is really fascinating to me because of the frankly, the newness, because we've been sort of insulated culturally in the recovery community from a lot of these um, things that are emerging more Mm -hmm. of late. And in talking to you, it kind of opens up a whole other corner of this universe or entire mm-hmm. universe in and of itself that we're really unfamiliar with. Yeah, so that's a, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. I think part of it too. I mean, you're not going to hear anybody in the you know traditional rehab setting sort of be a, you know, pound the table and be a proponent for plant medicine because it's a tool they don't have access to.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, hell you know?
0: no. So of course what you're going to hear in our society is that it doesn't work. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's a drug. It's considered a relapse and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, isn't true. It just isn't true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fear mongering mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, it's about allowing people to have the choice. It's, you know, why don't we have more choices as to how we receive treatment in America? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's every treatment center. It pretty much does the same exact thing, the same model, the same forms of treatment. And the insurance industry has created a minimum standard of care that treatment centers have to adhere to. Mm-hmm. in order to capture insurance reimbursement so they have to provide the basic level services in order to capture maximum reimbursement and so that's what we have in our in addiction treatment today in mm-hmm. the united states
2: well yeah um Yeah, it really is fascinating. I mean, I think part of it scares me because my my relationship, my only relationship has been recreational and and I'm I'm working through associating everything that was once recreational with being bad, Mm -hmm. Um, which I understand it's not. I mean, I've read fascinating stuff about, you know, a controlled medically administered dosage of psilocybin curing depression. And I'm, uh, you know, somebody that suffers from depression. I'm like, sign me up you know um but i get that that wouldn't be recreational and i wouldn't be um you know taking it to, to to trip i'd be taking it to to help myself out um but still there's like it makes me nervous personally um just
1: uh yeah we have these ingrained, ingrained kind yeah. of you know preconceived notions about yeah. such things and i think that as You know, you made that clear distinction between abstinence and sobriety, Mm -hmm. and uh, um, I don't know. It's just uh, there. There are all kinds of forks in the road that I Mm -hmm. think Chris and I are kind of standing, looking both ways right now, not Mm -hmm. really sure how to proceed. We didn't even touch on on the uh, on the what you'll be publishing through Amazon next week and the six Mm -hmm. things you need, you absolutely need to know before going into treatment. Which, frankly, it's about twenty years too late for me because I went into treatment and thought. You know, right off the bat, well, somebody needs to rewrite the big book because this is just, you know, I I had all kinds of preconceived notions that were wrong. Um, um, so I feel like we, we, if you'd be open to it, I would love to have you back on because we're just scratching the surface.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah,
1: yeah, I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole
2: plant-based medicine, uh, direction. Um. But before we let you go, I, I'm just curious. Do you have a, a, a program now that you work? Are you, if it's reasonable to ask, a 12-step adherent? Are you?
0: Sp- yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't uh, adhere to the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a, a real believer, I and mean, I don't. I don't look at it as a form of treatment. It's a form of fellowship, really, right. if anything, because it doesn't address the underlying drivers of addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not the underlying driver, the physiological drivers of mm-hmm. addiction, and. Um, you know, so like you touched on depression. I mean, a lot of depression is so prevalent in our society today because part, part and parcel because of the foods and the substances we put into our body. Um, you know, eighty percent of the serotonin and dopamine, GABA that our bodies produce are produced in our gut. So if we're putting, this is another reason why treatment is so poor today is because of the quality of food that people receive in treatment centers. You know, if you're eating fatty, high sugar, GMO foods. Uh, chances are you're going to suffer from depression and anxiety and other mental health concerns. Um, if you're eating a high vibrational, nutrient rich, plant based diet, you know a lot of those, uh, you know, mental and emotional imbalances tend to tend to sort of fall away. So, um, you know, with my with the with the people I work with, you know, we focus on sort of holistic forms of healing, really going after the underlying drivers of addiction. Um, Very rarely do I go to 12-step meetings. I have taken clients to 12-step meetings just to kind of show them what they're about But I don't believe in the messages. I think they're outdated Um, You know, I don't. I would never affirm that I'm powerless against, you know, anything Hmm. Uh, It's a negative affirmation affirmations are a powerful tool to reprogram the subconscious mind and um, You know I help people try and You know unlock doors in their consciousness that were previously locked and Hmm. Um, we we have a tendency to constrain ourselves by the stories we tell ourselves and um you know and that's sort of that's, that's sort of the way that, that i work and and um you know this book the this the six things book um you know again it's just a, it's just it was, i wrote it with the intention to sort of just give people a, a a guide to sort of help them understand what they're getting themselves into to formulate intelligent questions prior to going and sort of what to expect when you're in there. Um, because it's, you know, for people that haven't been, uh, they don't really know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And people that have been time and time and time again, um, they need to understand why it's not working for them. Mm-hmm. And, Again, the system right now that we have is designed to manage symptoms at best. All
2: right. Well, um, and so next week, people can start looking for that. Where would where, where should people look for you and, and your books and how can they find
0: you? Yeah, I'd start next week. It's going to uh, come out on Amazon. So you can just go to Amazon and, and uh, buy from there. I think it's going to be like, you know, five ninety nine or something like that. So it's not going to be cost prohibitive and it's going to be probably about, I don't know, 65 pages. Um, so it's, you know, it's a relatively quick read. Um, people can follow me on, on Twitter at Scott polara Um, Scott with two T's and is spelled P as in Peter, I L A R A. I'm on Facebook. i although I don't really, don't really use it all that much. Sure. Um, but you know, Twitter, Facebook, I don't, I don't use Instagram really at all. <laughs> either, so. Yeah.
2: It's
0: yeah.
1: she's a harsh mistress, Instagram, you
0: know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is, the, is, is, you know, feeds into addiction too. You know, technology mm-hmm. is a form of process addiction. And, I, it, you know, social media platforms drive the addictive consciousness.
2: It's actually, it's, I was just reading something that Instagram is the social media platform that's supposed to contribute the most to its users' unhappiness. <laughs>
0: which is crazy
2: yeah i think just because there's too much you know i don't know what comparison or something sure um you know you're looking at idealized whatever and you're never going to stack up um okay well scott absolutely fascinating and i and i i i think uh we will need to talk to you again sometime in the not too distant future but i'll follow up with you on that and uh yeah thanks so much for coming on and uh yeah you're welcome guys and
0: we haven't been and quickly too, if people uh, you know want to ask questions or um, you know get some more information on what concierge treatment looks like, they can also go to my website at the uh, thepowerofchoice dot com. Perfect,
1: fantastic. Right. Cool. Thank you again, Scott. Godspeed, man. It's uh, uh, it, institutionalized rehabilitation in that industry. It's uh, it's it's a it's a worthy cause. So all thank the you. best to you and, and thank you. Thanks, guys. You, you too.
0: Good night. Good night.
1: Alrighty.
2: That was Scott and
1: uh And this is Matt
2: And this is Chris that is Chris <laughs> <laughs> Um I was I can say a couple things just really quick before we get off. Uh one, if you get a chance, go on iTunes, give us the best uh review you can possibly give us within your conscience. Yes. Con- okay. Um
1: something sh- you can live
2: with. Something you can li- live with Be yourself. Honest. Be honest. Um two a couple of people have written one i think uh, i talked about i didn't knew nothing about seo and we don't appear in the in the on the front page when you search and I think, uh, ronnie had reached out with some thoughts and i appreciate that ronnie um someone else had recently i had asked for suggestions on guests and i'm trying to find it uh, John T reached out with a guest suggestion. I appreciate that. Thank you, John um, T. Uh, doo, doo, doo. Um, yeah, and and thanks everybody that that writes in and and leaves us messages and and uh, you know reaches out and uh, drops a tip in our tip jar. I appreciate it. All right, and uh, we'll see you next time. Seacrest out. <laughs>